influencers. Let's get bouge. Listen to A. Thompson for an hour. I'd rather fuck a blood relative. It's A. Thompson. Welcome to episode 174 of A. Thompson and Other Disappointments. Your twice-weekly dose of all things awful, disappointing, shit, and more shit. Ridicule, rants, and roasts from me, your host, Aid Thompson. Uh, if it's your first time listening, a Wednesday is usually the solo show, where I, uh, I rant my way through whatever's in the news or whatnot. Uh, and then Friday, I get a guest in, and we kick back, we open a beer, or a cheeky porn star martini, maybe an Advocar. Guys, whatever you're into. Nobody drinks Advocar anymore, do they? It's like fucking Campari or Baby Sham. Just shitty drinks that your uncle asks for at Christmas, you know? Like, no, Ron, there's no Campari. No one drinks Campari anymore, you old bastard. Just have a have a speckled hen or something. Or, or maybe just a coffee, because you've had two brandies already, and you know what you get like. One more drink, and you'll be getting all handsy with your great grandniece again. And it's not okay. You need to stop doing it, Ron. Anyway, grab yourself a beer and join me for tonight's Friday night show with my guest, whom I am very excited to have on. Uh, I am sat here, literally, guys, I'm sat here with empty balls. I am so excited. <laughs> <laughs> that he can join us. Uh, he and I go way back, like the seats of a Ford Granada. Uh, we first crossed paths in the bear pit that is the London comedy circuit. But prior to that, he was working in TV production. Um, since we both trod the same boards on the same stages um, back in the day, obviously I became a father and my children ruined my dreams. So between that and the pandemic, I got marooned in the middle of fucking nowhere and I started this shit podcasting, digital content, all of that stuff. Meanwhile, my guest tonight equally respectively pivoted into the digital content arena, and we're going to get more onto that a little bit later. But in the meantime, please provide a warm welcome to the show for my friend Alfie fucking Noakes. Woo! Alfie. Thank you for inviting me, Aid. Evening. Evening to you. How are you doing, man? I'm well, thank you. It's good to see your 174th episode, you say. Yes, 174. That's fantastic. Episodes. 173 episodes warming up for me. I appreciate it. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. I mean, I learned sort of, you know, crowd warm up from the best. So uh, um, let's let's start at the beginning, uh, Alfie, because um, I, I mentioned sort of in the intro that uh, that you and I know each other from the open mic comedy circuit. But before the comedy, before you got into the emceeing stuff, um, I don't know, like, I, I sort of feel like it's an interesting career trajectory for you because so many of the comedians that I got to know on the circuit back in the day, uh, invariably, like, the cliche was that they had kind of, I guess what you would call-ish kind of, like, dead-end jobs. Like, they would be in customer service or they would be working in a cafe or something uh, whilst they were pursuing that, you know, nighttime uh, uh, dream. Uh, whereas you had this sort of really interesting TV production like backstory before you even got into that so maybe you could could you take us on that journey with you could you sort of fill in the blanks yeah, what course. were you doing man uh yeah but i should make it clear i was never a comedian i was only the mc and the promoter and, and the booker of the shows i i never deemed myself a comedian so i was Pretty... just kind of putting those shows together so there was a bit of an overlap from making shows yeah for tv and then making live shows without any consideration of you know 
particularly lighting, but certainly camera audio and the like. It was a much simpler construct. Yeah. Um, but yeah, back in the day, I uh, appeared on a TV show uh, 30 years ago, and the premise for the show was called Movie Watch, was they'd get kids, funky-looking kids from around the country, uh, where basically these are the people the films are aimed at, 18 to 25-year-olds, mm. and then get them to review the films instead of like the crusty old film critic of the day back then would have been Barry Norman, and then get us to come to London, review the latest films and appear on the show. And I was a living, breathing human IMDb. I was an utter wild crazed movie maniac i just knew everything about films and they liked me so much having appeared on the show they offered me a job as a runner in the in the next series which is effectively the one who answers the phones picks up the post makes the teas and the coffees and i assumed working on a movie show i would be surrounded by tons of people who knew loads of about movies yeah. and that wasn't really the case they were just going to go and work on the big breakfast or surprise surprise or the saturday morning kids show next they didn't particularly specialize they just made the shows so i uh, i kind of inveigled myself into a niche and i ended up working on most of the movie shows over the coming years i worked from runner all the way through to serious producer and director and ended up making uh, a whole load of different documentaries about aspects of cinema yeah. i was at radio one for a while i used to be mark kermode reporter at radio one for a couple of years I used to uh, review for a few print uh, magazines and newspapers and the like. So, yeah, that was my domain. But it was like 90% TV. And every once in a while, you take the job because you need the money. It's a freelance world. And I'd end up, you know, producing uh, Russell Brand's spin-off of The Big Brother Show, for example. Yeah. So there's a few other things. But movies, that was my niche. That's a pretty, like, wide net of, like, shows. So you mentioned, like, sort of surprise, surprise and, like... A Russell Brand show and like so you must have met some pretty interesting I mean I'm I'm not asking you to muckrake but then I am definitely asking you to muckrake like <laughs> I know. tell me some shit well to be to be clear I didn't work on surprise surprise I was simply saying kind of the peer group of the production teams that was kind oh, of see. light entertainment so they, they might have been on the big breakfast and then they'd move to movie watch and then three months later you know I used to work at Rapido TV you know oh, and yeah. the sister office was Euro trash we made a show uh, called passengers uh after that you know we had another show called frontal so you can move around as a freelance universe just to clarify to that was their niche that was rapido not like pedo rap, 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 tv it was yeah well that, that, they made the tv show rap, rapido that used to be on the bbc <laughs> that was sounds... kind of do you remember this oh i remember the show i just like yeah. I, like now if you pitch that show if you were like yeah it's called rapido they would just be like no it's not <laughs> <laughs> well this is going back what 30 years now i mean i worked at rapido in the summer of 94 so i mean we're going back 30 years at this point yeah um but yeah rapido kind of owned youth you know while programming on channel four back in the day it was either planet 24 who made like the word and the girly show that kind yeah. of post pub friday night and their competitor was rapido yeah so you had these kind of you know this universe of production companies and people would move between certain kind of niches whatever their speciality was whether it was daytime tv or yeah, yeah. drama mine was kind of magazine shows and movie shows and you know if you get a half an hour documentary an hour documentary you can do a deep dive if you're just doing a four minute report about you know people who run fan clubs for radio one then you've got you know one day to go and do the interviews and yeah. hand it over to the producer so over the years it was a whole scheme of you know working up a working up a one-day shoot into a three-minute piece for a show that went out on friday um or it could be something for mtv that would go around the world you know broadcast for mtv all around the world for you know two or three weeks yeah it might be. must be quite interesting working in an environment like that like where 
you know that any crazy idea, like something like the word man like classic yeah. anarchic television mtv you know russell brand's basic like whole portfolio before like you know two or three years ago it's like like these these individuals and these production companies are are places and people who you could say do you know what would be fucking wild if <laughs> if we did this yeah. and then boom greenlit out it goes on friday night well, well, that was one of the things I had when I worked on that show, Frontal. They wanted to do a thing on legal highs. And this is going back to 2000, 2001. So, again, more than 20 years ago. I'm showing my age here. But they wanted a spot on that show. This is early days in the internet. Most people really maybe had an email address within one or two years prior yeah. to this. So that's yeah. how early it was. You know, and I was tasked. They spent, paid me over £1,000 that week to basically go and scour the internet for legal highs. And then we would put them on television, show people doing whatever I'd researched and then finding out if it worked or not. That's amazing. So, you know, you could go quite wild back then, but obviously the internet's taken over and people go far more wild on the internet than anything yeah. uh, Ofcom will let them do now. That's it. It's like those sorts of, I, I guess that's the sort of like godfather, that and jackass, the sort of godfathers of uh, internet prank culture, aren't they? Like you probably, well, sorry, you were going to say? Well, just because you mentioned Jackass, I worked at Hattrick TV for a while, who most famously uh, make Have I Got News For You, but they're one of the most you know, impressive and respected production companies run by a guy called Jimmy Morville. I worked there briefly on a hidden camera show, and the first week I was on production, they literally just sent me to a, a room with every episode of Jackass, and I think Trigger Happy TV. Yeah. And my job for the week was just to watch those and take inspiration. Not steal, yeah. but take inspiration and go, these are our touchstones for the show we're about to make. Make sure we're not, you know, inadvertently emulating what they've done, but take some inspiration. This is the category you want to be in. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of overlap in this universe. But again, I got paid over a thousand pounds to sit in a room and watch Jackass for a week. You know, yeah. there was a lot of perks to that job. That's fucking amazing. Do you, do you think any of that kind of that breed of cultural production or stepping outside the, uh, the, like the bounds of respectability? Do you think any of that happens anymore? I'm not sure it does. I'm sure it happens uh, because the teenage boy audience will always exist. And then there's the older than teenage, but still fairly puerile male audience that exists. <laughs> I just, I'm sure it's on the platforms that I'm personally, I'm not on, which will be, you know, TikTok and certain YouTube channels that I'm just not personally privy to because I'm that much older. But yeah. 30 years, you know, there's, you know, something, you know, Fails videos on the internet are obviously hugely popular. They're a variation on the theme of laughing at somebody else's distress. What, one of my mentors in TV made it clear to me when we were doing a, one of those late night, you know, word type shows. I never worked on the word, but it was in that slot. Yeah. Made it clear to me that one of the things we had to do was to make anybody watching this at home feel that they were missing out. That there's a party going on and they aren't as cool as us and this is where they should want to be which to me felt quite cynical at the time but as i kind of matured from like a researcher to a producer i realized he was 100 percent correct that was part of our ethos and you know when you've got a hundred thousand plus pounds per episode and you know i went off and did a piece with some british mercenaries for that show yeah um and i was wearing a shirt akin to this that day i used to have long hair and like eight earrings it was kind of a grungy look but with you know those those ex-paratroopers weren't mad about me. There's some direct action lesbians um, who were painting buses pink um, yeah. against uh, one of the 
horrible Tory clauses against uh, the gay community. You know, you tap into all sorts of stuff. And at the same time, would link back into the studio and people are smoking dried banana skins and finding out it doesn't actually get you high. But the lawyers <laughs> let us do this. Every time we did a live show, we used to get um, a speech from the Channel 4 lawyer. Uh, all the live shows I did were Channel 4. Um, and Mark Lambert would come in and give us a speech and tell us what we could and couldn't do. Yeah. And it changed from the first time I did live to the second. Um, and both examples was Chris Evans' TFI Friday. It was Sean Ryder, and he'd sworn at like 6.15, peak time, Channel 4 on a Friday. Yeah, Ginger TV, Chris, Channel 4 all got fined and slammed and piled on by the mail and all. And then they brought Sean Ryder back like the next season and made the biggest deal, of course he's not going to swear, which is just a red rag to a bull when you're dealing with Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays. He immediately swore all over again. Yeah. And kind of screwed Chris Evans over. And this was a huge kind of lesson that everybody who worked in live, live is the key word here, uh, broadcast TV, we had to be shown what had gone wrong before to make sure we didn't make these mistakes again. And we get warnings about, you know, what I didn't realize certain language wasn't permitted. I mean, they were right to warn us. Um, there's a traveler community that are referred to, for example, in films like Snatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who I'm talking about, okay? Yeah. I didn't, real, I didn't realize the P word that's often applied to that community is actually considered to be a racial slur. You oh, know, it's thrown yeah. out left, right, and center in the film Snatch. But I just thought that was common parlance. And most of my colleagues felt the same way as well. Now, again, I stress this is 20 years ago. But if we hadn't been alerted to that, we might have actually inadvertently made something that akin to a racial slur on live TV without any harsh intent or any, any meaning to do that. So they do try and keep you on the rails, but it's the push-pull between the creatives and the executives. It's the same as it ever was, the same as when you're making a movie. The producer's looking after the business side, the director's looking after the show side. It's the push-pull of show business. It, it's always there. Is there words that you can't say? Like, I mean, obviously there's the... Some words you can't say on television. Yeah, there's the... <laughs> Without going through the whole George Carlin routine, but like, uh, is there words that you can't say on live TV before the watershed that aren't the famous swear words? Like, can you say balls in that context? They've never been as defined as that, but they're, they're, they're savvy enough, they've grown up enough, at least in the area that I worked in TV. And I've been out of the game for well over 10 years now, let me be clear. I imagine those watershed laws have shifted because you've got the iPlayer and streaming yeah. services now. So it being on after nine o'clock doesn't make a world of difference. You can watch it on your phone on the way to school the next day if you want. Yeah. So I'm assuming this stuff's been diluted. I'm not an expert, but they were always savvy to acknowledge it within the context that it was delivered. Yeah. That was fair enough because obviously you, you could say balls and you'd be talking about beach balls and it's completely anodyne and it's daytime TV. Yeah. And you could say, I'm going to slap you in the forehead with my hairy balls and it's a completely different feeling, isn't it? If you slap me in the head with your balls, it would be a different feeling, yes. Uh, Sensuous. Let's let's stay on track with your, your career then. So you did TV production. Well, you, you did the, the uh, appearance, then the runner stuff um, into TV production. And then at some point you said, you know what, this is all great. This is really glamorous. I'm getting to meet some super famous, charming people. I feel well connected with the A-list. But you know what I really want to do? I fancy open mic comedy. So it's, <laughs> at some point... Yeah, none of, none of that happened. And none of it happened anything like that. I, I certainly didn't go around thinking I'm hanging out with all these cool people. In retrospect, I was. I was excited. You know, I was into movies and I was making movie shows. So by and large, I was meeting my heroes and I've been doing it for so long. I was starting to become familiar with them because when they've, they've got a movie coming out, they're on the publicity junkets. When you've been doing it over 10 years, you know, it's quite cool when 
an A-list movie star. She knows you by your name and says hello when you walk in the room. So those moments are grand. You know, I got to go to the MTV party, the Cannes Festival, you know, uh, yeah. Pierre Cardin's house. I mean, these are magical moments um, that, you know, I take pride in that I was able to do. But let's be clear, 80% of the job is in, a, in an office, same as anybody else. And then you might go on a shoot and an edit suite typically a windowless room. Yeah. And you just better pray you get along with your editor because you're going to be thrown together for weeks on end. By the way, editors are usually awesome. You know, yeah. they're really good people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd aim to try and get my career to, I wanted to be a film journalist, stick in my niche of movies, you know, dealing with filmmakers, going to movie sets and so forth, you know, established a good knowledge. My niche would not work really anymore because the IMD, IMDB now exists, but I had like a good six, seven year run ahead of that, mm. where if you're crewing up a film show, you know, my name would be thrown out to somebody who knew what he was doing, knew what he was talking about. Back in the day, this is really hard to believe now, you know, I don't want to come across as such an old man, but if you were doing an interview with, say, Bruce Willis, yeah, then we would have to contact the Financial Times cutting service and then send a runner down to London Bridge where the Financial Times is based. And then they would give a folder full of photocopied newspaper and magazine articles about Bruce Willis. Right. And then the runner would have to travel back across London to the office, give it to the producer looking after it. They would then read all of these photocopied sheets and then write the questions for the interview or whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, that is obviously wildly arcane now to just being able to jump on the IMDb and watch any trailer or any interview that he's ever done. Is that where the nickname, like the runner nickname, like you're running across town to... Uh, I'm that... not sure about that. I know the people that I worked with because I couldn't believe the luck I had working on that show. Let's be clear, you know, I was set to go to film school and I was making music videos for local bands and making my own short films. But, you know, I'm from Hull. There's not a whole lot of media activity going on. Yeah. So the fact that I was working on this show, I was so excited. I, I was in the same room as Jean-Claude Van Damme yeah. in my first week. Okay. And to me, that was just the most exciting thing in the world. And then the following week, I, was, I didn't meet him. I didn't get to speak to him, but I was in the same room as Martin Scorsese. Yeah. And this just didn't seem like anything that was even remotely possible even three months earlier. This and is then, you know, really interesting. It wasn't long before I'm actually being the one who gets to interview them. Like, do you did you suffer from uh, like imposter syndrome around then? You yes. Mean, and see... I didn't know that. Sorry to speak over, but yeah, I didn't know that expression. It was actually speaking to Mark Kermode in the pub one day. Yeah, I think he'd taken me to interview the Hughes brothers, you know, the guys who made uh, From Hell and Menace to Society. Yeah. So yeah. Mark was interviewing them, but I was a fan and I'd ask, do you mind if I just kind of come along? It'd be nice to meet, meet them. And then afterwards, I, in the pub, I said, look, you know, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm just waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder. And that's when I heard that there is such a thing as imposter syndrome. And he said, yeah. I can't say who it was, but he told me that an actor that you have absolutely heard of had told him exactly the same thing, that he himself one of the most famous successful actors in the world for 40 years had confessed to him that he's still waiting for the day somebody comes and taps him on the shoulder. But the yeah. bottom line is I was really good at what I did. And the, the runner, the question you asked about the runners, the people I first worked with used to joke that I was the only runner who actually ran. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was so thrilled to be that. And the nature of TV production then and probably now is it's a lot of rich kids whose dad knows somebody who gets them a job. The entry money is not a living wage at all. No. So you typically need to have a wealthy family behind you to kind of sustain you as you, you know, earn your stripes as a runner or as or a secretary. They're typically the entry jobs. Um, the kids who worked with me, the other runner, he was a nice guy. I liked him very much, but he was so posh. An actor from Cambridge called Tom couldn't be asked. You know, making a cup of coffee or a cup of tea was beneath him, and you could see it any time a, 
an associate producer asked him to do something and so he made me look good because nothing was beneath me i was just thrilled to be there yeah and as a result he was never hired again and i you know i developed a very successful 13-year career yeah yeah it's well i mean it's good that that dynamic worked out well for you but it's sad that you did have the the imposter syndrome thing and the the only reason i bring it up is it I, wasn't I, too bad it wasn't too bad it was just there sometimes it was yeah. a sense of i can't believe i'm in the room when you're talking about people at the level of martin scorsese or brian de palma or john i'm way more into directors than i am stars yeah um so you know the idea that i could be in the same room as um alan parker you know, mm. the director of Midnight Express and Bugsy Malone and Evita. I mean, one of the greatest directors of all time. You know, he's yeah. a, you know, it's, it's the late, great Alan Parker, I should say. But he's one of my most revered artists of all time. And he's a grumpy, unpleasant man. <laughs> he certainly was the times I met him every time. Yeah. But it didn't matter to me. I was close to greatness. And, you know, there was great pride and value in that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about your move into... To... Uh, starting uh, we are funny project so you and i uh crossed paths around that time i was at a point where well, i think a lot of aspiring stand-ups get to this point where around the age of 30 everyone in your circle stops going out to get pissed quite so much they pair up they move out of london or they have babies and so then it's like where the fuck did my social life go so then uh, and at the time, I was slowly tiring of music production, and I but I still wanted to do some, something before me. And I thought I'll go and check out a comedy night. And so I went into Dirty Dicks just off Liverpool Street, where you. Oh, so it was your it was my night, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I had I'd been to another night in um, uh, Waterloo uh, once, and I had been to uh, the Lions Den one when it used to be in Kings yeah. Cross. Um, yeah, but yours was the first one I went to where I was like, okay, this is co- like, I feel home here. This, like, these guys are supportive. I've got talking to this chap over here. Um, it like you gave was I the MC? I think you were right. MCing, and yeah. I got a video at the end of it, right? Which was at the time, like, now everyone films everything on their phones, right? But at the time, to have that sort of five minute video cut, edited, and emailed to you was like, oh, fucking hell, I can show, show this to my mates. Um, so it was a really, like, I don't know, it was, it was a, uh, romantic punk rock time for me to kind of explore that and to be exposed to this world of like flyers and gigs and artists and fanzines even like, um uh and your your night was a big part of that um but i know that we had very different experiences of the london open mic comedy world i i was able to operate quite selfishly in the sense that you know, I'm a comedian. I'm going to test my material. I'm going to gig three nights a week. I'm going to do it's all about me kind of thing. Um, you were a promoter as well as being an MC. So you're juggling different acts, people pulling out, you're juggling egos. It's like, do you look back at that period of time with the same punk rock fondness that I do? Or is it, do you see it all as a big stressy cloud or? No, no, I, I, I really appreciate your kind of punk rock uh, touchstone there. I like to think that two or three years of dirty dicks back in that era you know if there's ever such a thing as a history of the open mic comedy scene in london which there probably isn't but if there ever is i'd like to think we were the cbgb's for that two or three years yeah that was a particularly great venue with some great talent coming through and and a good vibe and we we put on all those different formats as well it wasn't just a standard open mic i think we developed 14 formats to stretch you all 
Um, you've got to bear in mind, you're right, what you described yourself as a comedian is every comedian's thing. You only care about yourselves. That's how <laughs> it works. It may be the clique of people you've decided to hang out with or aspire to. And I've got absolutely no problem with that. Yeah. So long as it doesn't get out of control, I have to you know, obviously be to a degree the policeman in my own room. So if I see an act bullying another act, I've got to pull them up in it or stop booking them or whatever it might be if they're not reliable and they don't turn up. Um, so I have to be a slightly more aggressive or forthright person than I might otherwise choose to be. Otherwise, you know, give them a give them an inch or take a mile kind of thing. You've got to bear in mind, 400 people a month were asking me for stage time and I was able to host maybe half of them. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a very clear distinction when I'm teaching the MCing uh, classes or courses. You know, I make it really clear. Uh, the difference between me as an MC and a promoter and you as a comedian is, is simply this. Your first priority is you. My first priority is the show. Yeah, yeah. And I think most comedians figure that out soon enough, but some of them never figure it out. And they just can't understand why I'm making certain decisions because they're so self-obsessed yeah you know i've always been drawn to colorful eccentric characters so if, 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 that, if those are your people this is the place to be that was the place to be yeah i mean it's there's definitely no shortage of fucking lunatics on of course on the circuit. Yeah. Or, or at least there wasn't at that time maybe it was something about that era that period but um no there's the, the way i pitch it i've just i'm training in two guys that have basically kind of taken over the live shows for me i'm still the head guy we are funny project but i've moved into new territories that we may or may not discuss but uh you know, as I'm as I'm training them in, um, and they've they've got the full range now. Was just explaining. Look, the thing. Imagine you did a a hundred normal people of society. You just took a random sampling of a hundred people. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to suggest maybe the very best of those people is literally a, a wonderful angel, a delightful, awesome human being, and the worst of them would be an awful scumbag. Well, in stand-up comedy, times it by three at both ends. There are three <laughs> scumbags and there are three angels. Yeah. And that's what you have to deal with. So, you know, for everybody that was aggressive or annoying or, you know, start spreading rumors about you because you won't book them or whatever the hell it happens to be, you, you meet three amazing people that you just have such a laugh with after the show and during the show. And, you know, yeah, it, it's all more than worth its while. But, you know, I've been doing it for 13 years. So I've kind of kind of I've, I've run my time on the stage, really. Do you you don't miss it doing the MCing at all? or No. No, I mean I'm still teaching live workshops, so I still get to go on stage and kind of throw it about about throw it about on there while I'm kind of showing them what does or doesn't work, and mainly showing them what does work. Yeah, uh, but no, not really. You know, I'm I'm 13 years older than I was when I began. You know, um, so uh, no, it's time for, for the younger lads, Luke and Paul, to take take charge now. Yeah, fair enough. It's just sort of surprising because my my memories of you and you, you know, fair to point out that it was a you know over a decade ago since since we first uh, uh, trod the boards together. But um, my memories of you were you like sort of, you know, leaping on the stage, um, yeah. uh, you know, sc <laughs> not screaming in a sort of, you know, I guess screaming in a slightly anarchic way. Um, uh, but yeah, sort of this, you know, this energy and this life on the stage that was, you know, no disrespect meant to any of the other open mic nights that were around that time. But, it was, you know, there was a lot of, uh, what we call bringers in the open mic world where it's you know you every act has to bring along a friend to bulk up the numbers uh which is you know fine good good for them but that brings with it an atmosphere of oh like half the crowd are like i'm only here because my mate's on and they only want to see their mate and then actually they kind of want to fuck off so there's a sort of uh, there's a there's a we meh. have projects and we've never run a no. gig so no. so there you you had that going for you you had your energy um 
the the venue was great and i just sort of i i think if i was running something like that even if i wasn't doing the emceeing now i would i would kind of miss it i think uh no i don't i haven't even been to i've been to one show we had our 10th birthday party show last week yeah and that's the only show i've even been to this year yeah of, of my shows i've just give luke and paul a chance to kind of find their feet they don't need they don't need to feel that I'm, I'm watching them or anything. It's time for a new generation to take over. I like to think of it as like Doctor Who regenerations. Yeah. We've had the me and Alex Martini era, and now it's time for Luke and Paul. Fucking hell, Alex Martini. How's he doing now? I haven't spoken. He's married. I, I know. Yeah, I saw he was married. He uh, yeah. Actually, did he message me? Did he like, like something a few weeks ago? Oh, yeah. He's trying to like Alex to do something online. He, 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 uh, he shared my LBC thing back to me or something. He was like... Or he, did he tweet it? I can't remember now. Anyway, what's up, Alex, if you're watching? I uh, hope you're well. Um, okay, so let's talk about the sort of pivot from from the comedy world uh, into digital content. So one of the areas I was keen to sort of draw a parallel with you uh, of was... So around the time that I uh, became a father and then the pandemic hit, and it was like it made sense for me to kind of focus a little bit more on online stuff. I thought, fuck it, I'll start a podcast. Everyone else is. So, you know, maybe I've missed the boat, but let's give it a bash. Um, and, and sort of getting into TikTok and politics and so on. Um, you kind of made a similar pivot, but into a different arena. You didn't go the podcast route or anything. You were like, you know what? I've learned a shit ton emceeing and running nights. I Maybe there's an audience for this and I could yeah. look into doing courses and educating people. And um, so let's talk a little bit about that. How's that gone? Yeah, it's going well. Um, it's what, what two years out of the worst of the pandemic. I mean, it yeah. depends where you draw the line in the sand. But as you said, you know, locked up at home. What am I going to do with my time? So, I'd already been. I originally started running workshops for comedians, but bringing in other people to teach professionals. Yeah, and then just by definition of producing those workshops, I'm watching every workshop, and then I have the privilege of going on stage and doing what those teachers said you should never do and finding out they were always right yeah and then doing what they do do and finessing i was already a pretty good mc but then i got to finesse by taking the advice from some of the best in the country so i i got to do all these workshops and then have the stage time to apply it not just in five minute sets or ten minute sets i'm on and off stage 20 times yeah you know i've got like 30 minutes of stage time every four nights a week for years yeah so i was able to apply all of these things and you know we had comedy storytelling, character comedy, musical comedy, emceeing, uh, writing comedy for radio, television. I think, again, 12, 13, 14 different workshops. So I kind of accrued all this knowledge, and uh, I figured I would turn it into an online course. Um, and I launched a YouTube channel as well, which meant going through a lot of archives of Real Funny Project shows and then reaching out to some people that have gone on. Some of them have gone on to be very, very famous indeed. Um, and some of them were very but gracious and saying, yeah. We didn't even talk about like who actually came through like the We Are Funny project. So like, let's let's name drop. Let's shamelessly name drop. I'll leave that, I'll leave that to you. I'm, I'm going to. So I, I remember, uh, did Jamali Maddox, he he did We Are Funny, didn't he? Oh, regularly, yeah. Yeah. Like, this is I way... think Jamali did his first headline sport, MC sport and paid sport with We Are Funny. I think. Yeah. Um, who His first time saying was amazing. He almost killed an audience member. It was really what? quite remarkable. I thought he almost say... killed an audience member. I... Yeah, Jamal is not the type of person to heckle. No, no, probably not. But like, I thought you were going to say he almost killed. Like, you know, that night he almost smashed it, sort of thing. Like, no, he, he almost murdered every someone. Night. We, 
we could always see how good he was from the beginning. Yeah, clearly, clearly talented. One of these. I used to fucking hate that expression where people would say like, "The guy's just got funny bones." Like, but it's. I don't know if it fully uh, encapsulates what he has, but he's just got a natural tone and vibe and expressive nature. His attitude. Yeah. He's got the smartest attitude. I would say, I think I've got some lovely statistics away off on you, if you care to hear them. As I say, we've just had our 10th birthday. I was doing it for three years before it became We Are Funny. Yeah. I kind of morphed into that. Um, we've put on something 17, 1800 shows. I've emceed over 1,000 myself. We've had about 10,000 people performed now yeah. uh, with way off on your project and all together it's something like thirty thousand five minute spots have been yeah. produced by we are funny so i've been able to observe these people through their various arcs you know the person who does three of them and then spends the rest of their life telling people at dinner parties they used to be a comedian <laughs> um, and then yeah. you know i've seen the people that you know you just think are never ever ever gonna get there but they're nice to chat to off stage and you know god loves to try you know and then four years later all of a sudden something happens and they become amazing yeah and then occasionally very occasionally i think it's fewer than 20 people in the 10 years where you just see them uh, again i'm not going to name names but i'm super proud that three of the top comedians in this country now did their very first gigs on my stage over, yeah. over 500 people have done their first ever gig on on my stage brought on by me yeah so i've seen people go from you know the nerviest of gigs that first gig all the way through to you know the kind of celebrity it's funny isn't it reach the top. you would think that having done the amount of emceeing and having witnessed the amount of acts that you've seen that you would be able to put your finger on like that that guy's never going to get it or or that girl is no she's not a comedian but you're right to allude to what you you just mentioned a second ago about how sometimes you see people and you're like oh this guy's shit like and you just go back to your phone ignorantly rudely and then you see the same person only like six months later and because they've been gigging like five gigs a week or something and they're obsessing stage time is everything uh, yeah. and then if you learn some lessons uh, i thought there were definitely people that i would never there's one acting in so yes it's just going to be terrible forever oh but damn. other than that throwing I would shade say, alfie i would say that everybody can if they just work hard enough i saw acts that i just thought were diabolical that would never get there and then they did something just switched something dropped for them and then every now and again very rarely you'll see an actor who's just like brilliant just yeah. you just see from the beginning there's something really special there yeah. but anyway and back to answering your question yes during lockdown i kind of had all the archives from the way i funny project so i started a youtube channel um and i've barely been able to touch it since since we could start doing live shows again 18 months ago it was like right get off the computer back to getting the shows happening um get those back on their feet because it was a big thing right? 22 yeah there was a big thing, obviously, through the pandemic where uh, comedy and every other type of live performance, for obvious reasons, was effectively retired. It was like, right, done. You're not sitting in a crowd. You're not going to see a band. Fuck comedy. It's all over. And so there's yeah. this whole um, populace of London acts, I'm sure nationally and internationally also, uh, but London yeah. acts were in my periphery where they were desperate to to express themselves and to try the new idea. Like to to cut it off would trigger post-traumatic stress, I'm sure, for a lot of comedians because it's so ingrained, like it's such a, a deep part of them. Uh, and so what sprung up, you will know this, but just for the benefit of, of listeners, uh, what sprung up out of that was this sort of weird like Zoom comedy thing where people would do online 
open mic nights and it would be like a wall of you know like a conference call of face after face after face and then you know only i as the performer would unmute myself i would tell the jokes and i don't i don't really know how it would work i didn't do one of them but it was fascinating to see like something as um fluid and uh what's the, just natural as putting people in a room and listening to a funny story and they all laugh take that and then try to translate that to something as soulless and clinical it was i think what you might be missing there was the community element i didn't run any of those shows i only uh took part in one of mm. them as it was a friend's birthday but it was a way of the community staying in touch with one another look yeah we, i've already you've already kind of addressed the fact i had this tv career and a lot of that career was spent going to the cinema because i was a film reporter yeah so while i'm filming editing and then watching the movies i spent so much of my life in front of the screen that when i got to the comedy universe part of that was a kick against being in front of the screen it's probably why i'm not mad on social media and I'm all about the live experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so all of a sudden, those two worlds clashed. And what what will be hilarious in a club? And it is hilarious in a club. If you filmed it flat out and just showed it to somebody, you will lose at least fifty percent of the power of that. It could yeah. literally come across as not funny, but with everything, with the context and the energy of the room and everything that happened, it can be a massive, massive laugh on the night. There was a huge disconnect between the screen and the live experience That's... and i've spent the last 13 years investing myself into that live experience yeah and then going full circle with what you asked earlier on and now i'm back to the screen because i'm i'm currently you know creating these online courses for comedians because i've seen so many people that have just kind of banged their head against the wall or i can see what they're trying to do it's not for me to go up to a, a young comedian and start advising them what they should or shouldn't do and typically when they would ask me advice if they were within their first 100 gigs i wouldn't give anything maybe if there was something egregious i would point it out to them but by and large just kind of find your own way but after all of these years of doing this i've realized actually i've got all of this knowledge um maybe i can impart it and save a lot of comedians a lot of rookie errors because you see roughly the same mistakes over and over again and mm -hmm. when we've run the workshops for example we might be running a workshop on emceeing or comedy storytelling and it's amazing how the acts still just want to hear something about hecklers from the tutor. Right. Like, hecklers aren't really that big a deal, certainly not an open mic. You know, they really aren't very often of, of a feature. And by the time you make it to a pro room, you will have the skills to deal with a heckler. But it doesn't matter what course or workshop we're running, people always want to know about the hecklers. Yeah. So back to kind of the pivot, you came to making this amazing show. And I went to kind of going through the archives, um, contacting acts. Uh, asking if I could put their content up. I made the mistake at one point of not always asking, and uh, I realized that was something I needed to remedy. Um, and a lot of acts were very kind to say yes, but a lot of acts were like, no, I'll get killed for that content now. And they're right, the Overton window has shifted so much that, you know, a very, in, in one case, he, he's an openly gay act. He's clearly a gay guy, and he's part of his set and stage and persona. Um, but he wouldn't let me put some material up because he's like, they will cancel me for this now. And I didn't think it was that controversial, but actually looking back to it, he probably had a point. And as he has a professional career now, you know, he has something to protect that he didn't have back then. So I was putting together the YouTube channel and archive, creating some kind of basic lessons for new comedians. Mm. And then that kind of led into making a, 
an online course that's yeah, it's for sale. It's not just a 3D online course. It's one for beginners, and I did one for MCs, which is a niche of a niche. Yeah, yeah. Teaching people how to kind of MC and maybe set up a night. It also shows you how to kind of set up and run a room, whether you're going to be a guest MC is one avenue, or whether you're going to set up and run your own night. It's all kind of covered in, in that course. So can and you... I've just wrapped. Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, so, like, I guess a regular like a non-comedy person's perspective of teaching people comedy mm -hmm. might be like the challenge that you might get or maybe you have got is i don't think that funny is something that you can teach people so what would you say to yeah them? i've had oh it's that's a nonsense criticism <laughs> uh i've had this from some really high-end uh, professionals that i really respect people that are professional long before i was in the comedy business um uh, people that i really respect and every time we get into it, they end up, to their credit, relenting. It's just like, look, I don't know the first damn thing about plumbing. Yeah. But if you give me five hours of the plumber and goes, look, here are the basics. Okay, when you connect this to this, and this is what this tool is called, and this is what it does. Yeah. The odds are the next time I have a leak in my kitchen, I'll at least be able to find a stopcock. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now I can build from there, and at least my kitchen hasn't flooded. I can't take somebody who is inherently staid and unfunny and make them funny. I can't do that. No. They can do it, but I can't do it. What I can do is give them some principles, some theories to go look, point out this way lies danger. Look, if you've only got four gigs under your belt, probably best not to go straight into the abortion issue or whatever the topic du jour is. Like, find your feet before you try and be an edgelord. You know, <laughs> there are certain tropes of, you know, yeah. being somewhat appealing to the audience don't lose the audience as soon as you get on the side maybe way to read to the audience how you're going to generate ideas and then flesh them out is it going to be a story yeah. is it going to be a bit is it going to be a chunk so there's all these elements as there is in anything in this world whether you're a chemist or whether you're a chef there's recipes and ingredients and then you make something from that so there's these courses are kind of predicated on showing people recipes ingredients and some kind of theories yeah yeah there's a real like science to it isn't there it's like and, and it goes for both like the writing and the performance elements to it so like the performance you can get obviously a lot like more well versed at it you know how to react to certain things if the barmaid drops a glass at the back and it smashes after we, yeah the first few times that's what the room's gonna do so you've got to be ready for that yeah 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 it's like the elephant in the room rule right you have to fucking acknowledge what just happened don't just ignore it and carry on with your routine because Ooh. everybody's already thinking about the smash glass they're not listening to your shit anymore so there's stuff like certainly that true of an mc say again that's certainly true of the mc to address the elephant in the room i think when acts are dealing in just five minutes you know i mean, just it's worth pointing out you know if I, people typically speak at three words a second yeah. So a five-minute set, which in the London circuit is common currency. That's how long you've got on stage, five minutes. Well, that means you've got about 900 words yeah. okay, when you're writing your set out. But you don't. You want something like 800, 850 for beats and pauses, applause breaks, introductions, all of that. You know. So when you're writing, you're a brand-new comedian, you don't know that. That helps you figure out, have I overwritten? Have I underwritten? What do I need to edit it to? In, in you know, in regard to what you were just saying, my first course, the one for beginners, is designed for people who have either never performed or, or within their first 100 gigs on the idea that they've done two gigs a week for a year, four gigs a week for six months. Yeah, yeah. And I find a lot of the acts who have got like 40, 50, 60, 70 gigs already believe themselves to be too advanced for this course right. designed for newer acts. But they're not because they don't know what they don't know yeah yeah uh, they it's still entirely relevant to them to pick these things up but as I you were always, saying writing right. performing 
I broke this course down. It's called the three P's course. It's, right. like, it's preparation, performing, and polishing. It's yeah. 22 sections. And if I remember correctly, I think the first 16 are preparation. Yeah. Okay. They're all about before you even set a foot on the stage so that when you do get to the stage and you're performing, you are so well prepared. You have every reason to have confidence and like it should be exciting as opposed to frightening and yeah. all of these. Now, you've been given so many avenues to kind of find material and hone a joke and to expand it to get, you know, three tags instead of just a single punch. So yeah. it's all there for them if they decide to kind of follow the direction. I don't want cookie cutters. I couldn't make just the same comedians over and over. It's giving them ideas how to tap into their own observations. It's at the end of the day, every comedian is given their take on the world. Yeah. Okay. There's no way out of that. That's the way it should be. I'm just kind of highlighting to them ways that they might find ideas or attitudes, you know, go into the world and observe what makes you angry, what annoys you. Yeah. Okay? Pay attention to that. Okay. Cause that's going to be fertile material that you can turn into jokes. And now here's some ways of writing jokes. Yeah. Obviously it doesn't cover every way because I'm not that good. Nobody is, um, but they're still very good functional ways. Yeah. And then I've just finished a new one, the advanced one, which is uh, for comedians who are a little bit more advanced, uh, stepping forward in stand-up comedy. And that's got my unique cinematic system of stand-up. So I'm taking that movie-making film journalism world I had before yeah. and applying movie-making tactics to uh, to stand-up comedy. Because yeah. every every comedian is their own, what are they, their own director, producer, screenwriter, lead role. They've got to come up with a story. And then they'll be navigating things like marketing and publicity, mm. competitions, critics, reviewers, agents. They've got to be mindful of their hair, makeup, wardrobe, uh, yeah. rehearsals. All of these things overlap. So and that's, that's what the like, new course is. I, I think we were, we touched on this when we were first talking about do, like having this chat. But I was saying like that's such an underspoken uh, rule, unspoke, underspoken or unspoken, uh, unspoken. rule of yeah uh, of um, of being a comedian in London is this sort of in the sense that a singer-songwriter might be an amazing singer-songwriter, but if they don't upload their music and promote and be promoting always, like, and smashing it out and learn how to edit and make their own music video, they are going to fall behind the person who's actually a bit shitter but is really fucking good at all that stuff. And there's a there's a kind of sadness to that, isn't it? Because there might be... I mean, I suppose in some ways with comedy, it's a, a little bit more meritocratic than that because if somebody's fucking hilarious in a comedy club you will remember them and you'll seek out more of their stuff maybe but in in a I world tend to of... disagree with that a little oh, bit oh really to be honest yeah i mean let's be clear first of all i'm a man of a certain age who really isn't the biggest fan of social media i don't have a tiktok account i don't i'm not on twitter so i am somewhat removed so i think it's fair that i point this out but actually within this new course the stepping forward to stand-up course you know i knew i think there's 16 sessions in it it's like 20 minutes a week or thereabouts you do the session you do the challenge task at the end and then come to the next one when you're ready right but of those 16 13 i knew exactly what i was talking about i've got my own opinions attitudes and experiences to to write those but three of them i felt i needed out, outside research to go to one was for the critics and reviewers i spoke to a top critic i spoke to somebody who runs a big comedy competition here in london to get some some of his insights mm -hmm. and then i spoke to an excellent agent um who assigned some of the people that you know you know from we were when you were gigging at mine yeah yeah and um you know he pointed out that not him necessarily but um some agents and some tv producers are now paying attention when they're looking to book somebody for whatever mock the week uh, live at the apollo whatever it might be they are starting to take into account what kind of social media following they have 
right like which i found quite surprising but i think we can also go the other way and look at the kitson model who does no publicity whatsoever yeah and he just has a mailing list and then when he's ready to do a show he'll just send out an email and go i'm going to be at this venue on this day for three nights and his ticket sells out in an hour yeah my conclusion from all of that is what's going to probably serve you best are you going to spend two hours a day managing three or four different social media accounts you know wanking off every time you get a like or a follow <laughs> or yeah. could you do five extra two hours a week basic math tells us that's 10 hours getting better at comedy because you used the word a moment ago and i agree with you entirely it's the ultimate meritocracy yeah they laugh or they don't yeah. except it's not quite that clear because there's different scales of laughter you know but if you're getting big laughs as a matter of course if you're dropping some truth bombs making people go oh my god he's right i'd never realized that or whatever it might be yeah then you're going to rise to the top regardless you don't need to do the social media following once you get an agent then they'll start honing you and looking after you and moving in the right direction if they're the right agent of course and then after that you've got publicists and the rest whose job it is so the question is, do you really want to spend all the time on publicizing most likely the earlier years, the earlier iterations of everything? The first draft is always the worst draft Yeah, yeah. in almost everything we do. So is it really worth in the first two years of being in comedy, putting out all the stuff that if you persevere, you'll probably be quite embarrassed by two or three well, or five years down the line. Yeah. Or you could do an extra few hours a week actually focusing on your art. And then people start seeing it when you've actually got good rather than you've just started. So I've got a very particular angle on this. I'm not plugged into the social media world. That has to be made clear. Yeah, um, I do. Like the, the, the one thing that bothers me about social media and comedians coming up is the fucking captions on them. It's like the, <laughs> every video has like captions bouncing out of my. Fa I'm like I'm trying to watch like you know a, a decent stand-up comedian who I'm a like a legit fan of, and they'll be like. Then what's the lesson from this aid? What's the lesson for you to take from that? That's not the platform to watch their comedy, is it? Go and see them live. Wait until they've got a full special. Wait until they appear on a show that you would like the format of otherwise. But if you actually are irritated by the captions, yeah. why are you watching them on that format? Plus, you I've just told kids, me you don't Alfie, like it. I can barely leave the fucking house, there's, man. There's <laughs> other things. Go and there's see them live? Are this. you insane? Okay, but, you know, <laughs> wait till they've got their, you know, netflix special or you know whatever it might be yeah i mean i'm i'm yeah, something I, I don't a... believe i don't i don't think you know tiktok is really the ideal platform for no, you know you're it's right. a platform for a single joke not for the energy built up over a 50 minute hour no and and just to sort of echo what you were saying before there is a real loss of uh like energy or feeling when you try to translate comedy from the live experience of being like there's just something fucking scientific about taking a row of people of human beings smushing them close together you you make it a room with a low ceiling uh no natural daylight coming in it's got to be pitched this is why they're always in basements or lofts um mm -hmm. make it on a thursday or a friday night don't do comedy on a monday night you may disagree on that because you used to do monday night uh nights but i always found thursday friday nights were best um there's so many like variables and it really fucks with your head because like you'll do a joke on thursday night mm -hmm. and it will fucking kill and you'll walk out of there like up the steps of dirty dicks and you'll tell yourself and i'm friday the funniest night. fucking guy ever like i'm i've conquered this and then you try it again on a tuesday night and people don't laugh and you're like that's weird and then you think is it just me and there's like an act that went on before you and after you and they both killed they murdered <laughs> they were so good and you sucked
but yet your joke worked on Thursday. So what's the variable? Like what? Like that's the alchemy. This is this is why I had that unique position because I'm not a comedian, but I was on the side of the stage watching every one of you close up. I saw hundreds of you do what you just described, crush on a Thursday, and uh, the following Monday not. You know, there's all of these variables. It's the other acts, it's the mood of the audience, it's something in the delivery. It can often just be that somebody's had a bad day at the open mind level. You know, yeah, I only yeah. look to teach at the open mind level. I wouldn't presume to tell anything to a pro. Um, but, you know, there could definitely be something the amateurs, open mind by definition, of course, is amateur. You know, there can just be a thing where you've had a shit day with your boss and you come in and you can't just quite shake it off. In my TV years, I was really quite amazed, particularly when I was at Radio One. You know, because I'd see the DJs about to go live on air, you know, whoever it was in the afternoon. or I was there in the Chris Evans when he had the breakfast show era, you know, and they kind of had a really bad something going on. But as soon as the show goes out, they've got to be there as everybody's mate across the country with five million listeners or whatever it might be. That's an aspect of professionalism that most open micers haven't got, at least in the early days. It can just be that they've had a shitty day and they can't quite shake it off enough in the performance to carry it off. Whereas when they were here, when, as you said, you know, the next night you have a perfectly good day, you're in a good mood and you arrive and you bring that to the stage. So these little nuances exist in the open mic circuit. The professionals have find ways to iron those out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you sort of learn to, like, if you have had that rough day, you just find ways of like masking that just for the five minutes or just for the 10 yeah. minutes that you're on. Um, I had, I had a lucky version. I used to, I've uh, really, I used to suffer from a really bad back. But as you might remember, every one of my shows will kick off with uh, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. Yeah, yeah. And I just have a Pavlovian response when I hear that song. It doesn't matter what's going on. All of a sudden, any back pain I might have just disappears. I get energized. I found it out during the lockdown. I just had the radio on. I'm all on my own. Yeah. The radio came on Welcome to the Jungle, and I just turned into this hyped-up machine ready to run a show. It was I was nowhere, nowhere to spend that. In the middle of a pandemic, you just like grab a mic off your mantelpiece, dust it off, start beckoning people in with their masks and shit. I'm doing a show, guys. (laughs) Come in. It's like, this motherfucker's breaking the law. Um, Alfie, thank you so much for uh, for joining us tonight. Um, Tell us where we can, where we can, any like listeners who are interested in learning comedy and emceeing and so on, where can they find the courses, man? Uh, well, most of housed at the website. That's all the W's. We are funnyproject.com. There's a free ebook on there if you sign up to the mailing list. Eight problems comedians run into and how to handle them. Uh, I think there's a full session from each of the courses. Stepping into stand ups, the one for newbies, uh, how to be a brilliant stand up comedy MC. The very modestly titled uh, course yeah. there. And then the new one, it's, this is the one that uses film techniques. When I've been doing coaching, comedy coaching for individuals, this whole idea came from. Uh, pointing out to them you're basically the lowest budget film director in the world as a, as a comedian okay yeah. but you're painting pictures in people's minds as opposed to on a screen you're looking to misdirect your audience involve your audience surprise your audience take them on emotional journey. all of these things over overlapped and then i realized i could take it further with the producer and actor and so forth so stepping forward and stand up that's the new one that's the advanced one everything you need to find is pretty much at the wearefunnyproject.com wicked cool man thank you and uh yeah guys don't be it's don't great be to see you man by the way huh? you're looking really well it's really i yeah, just want to say you're looking really well it's good to see you oh it's good to see you too man yeah we'll finally meet up for a beer at some point i'm next in london yeah. 
um yeah guys don't be strangers uh, jump on the wearefunnyproject.com check out those uh, those courses um just before i go just want to say a quick shout out to the patreons thank you so so much once again for continuing to support the podcast um big shouts to kerry stuart rodri samantha eddie anthony ailsa and silent then we've got sarah peter jeff kai congratulations on the new baby to kai uh alex aaron t-rex and then we've got Pingu, Matthew, David, Chris, and Bowman. Thank you so, so much, guys. Um, I'll be back next Wednesday with a solo show in which I will no doubt be ranting, roasting, and ridiculing the coronation, which we're all being subjected to uh, this weekend. And I'll be back next Friday uh, with my guest, Star B, who I've met on TikTok. Um, she's really cool. She speaks about things from a sort of working class background but also um she is experiencing uh, an illness that she's sort of overcoming and still doing marathons and stuff she's quite an inspiring individual so i'm super psyched to get her on next week and get her thoughts and feelings about life love and the universe so don't miss that uh, until next time take care of yourselves i'm out this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs>